Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance. The Stevens Center is the premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauck, an MBA candidate at the Wharton School. On today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast, I sit down with Ross Hassan, co-founder of Bro Capital. Bro Capital is the first fintech built by and for black male millennials. It is a cooperatively owned and operated financial technology company that provides a software platform and membership community to increase the financial wellness of black millennials. They accomplish this through savings goals, dividends and revenue sharing, co-investing opportunities, deposit transparency, education, community building, and much more. Ross and his team were named to Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 and have been featured in the New York Times, the Associated Press, Time Magazine, BET, the Chicago Tribune, American Banker, CNN, the Huffington Post, and just announced a partnership with Lenovo. In this episode, we delve deep into Ross's background and motivations for starting Bro Capital, the obstacles his team faced along the way, how Grow works, and many aspects of systemic inequality in the U.S. that have destroyed black wealth creation. Let's get started. Ross, thanks for coming on the show during this crucial time in our country's history. We're excited to have you on. Oh, certainly. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here and speak with you. Great. So to begin, can you tell us about your background up until you founded Bro Capital? <laughs> my background up until I founded Bro Capital, man, it's like my whole life flashed before my eyes, man. Um, so my background, I, I guess I can start from uh, originally from the southeast side of Cleveland, Ohio, um, the black side of town, right? And then, of course, I went to Morehouse College, um, 18 years old in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a very um, concentrated cultural hub for black people in America. Um, one of the leading, if not the leading place um, in Morehouse College is also the institution that um, Martin Luther King attended. And he also was a sociology major and so I, as well as myself. So um, that is kind of where I, I guess I've, you know, became a man at. And uh, it, immediately after graduating college, I founded a company with some of my friends called um, Infinity Club Investment Group, ICIG. And we taught uh, the feeder program into Morehouse financial literacy and investing and education, right? Young black boys coming into Morehouse College. Um, and so then we also, you know, thereafter, I went on to found, um, well, co-found, excuse me, uh, with my partner, Darius Quarles. Um, a million dollar scholar. So we were building an education technology startup together. Um, it was his baby, his brainchild, you know, but I had the opportunity to come through and really help him build out the business model um, and, and really, you know, make some sales. So that was um, really our first foray and, and really where we made our bones at in terms of, you know, entrepreneurship and um, really learning a business modeling process, lean startup process. Um, then of course went on to found Bro Capital out of our experience as young, number one, black, number two, and then of course, first time entrepreneurs, number three, 
um, three strikes were against us. So we learned very quickly that traditional VCs were not checking for us as you know, companies or really because as they told us, you invest in the entrepreneur, you don't invest in the company. And so they were very quick to not take a chance on us. Um, and so we learned that again very quickly. And that's where Bro Capital came about to where we figured how do we create a sustainable solution to building uh, companies and, and startups and investing in companies and startups that come out of the minds um, of entrepreneurs such as ourselves, young black men. And so that was that was really where um, you know we we developed Bro Capital in you know the ideation the experience came in 2014 and 15 the ideation specifically came in 2015 and then of course by 2016 uh, uh, October 11th is our launch date. So were there any specific events at a young age that got your mind so entrepreneurially focused? Seems like you adopted that mindset well before you got to Morehouse. Um, so in 2015, there's a book on the desk that says the destruction of black civilization by Dr. Chancellor Williams. Right. And so I open up the book and it says the African constitution. And I'm like, oh, okay. Was this, was, I'm like, was this before or after the Magna Carta? Right. And I was using the Magna Carta as my frame of reference. And his response to me was, get your mind out of Europe. I said, what? He said, get your mind out of Europe. He said, you're using their history as a measuring stick for your history. And so that just blew my mind. And from, you know, since the age of 15, I kind of glossed over that when you asked me about my life. Um, you know, my mother was really always into us being self-sufficient, you know what I'm saying, as black people, because my great-grandfather was a businessman in Tuskegee, Alabama, and he had land, you know what I mean? He he actually left all of his children land and businesses. Um, those, those didn't transfer to my generation, right? Because now I understand that you have to teach, not only do you have to put your children in position, you have to also have to teach them how to you know, how you got to that position. Otherwise, it's not going to last that third generation, right? But, um, you know, I, I I don't even say luckily. I'm thankful that my grandmother was a very smart and educated woman, and she was able to buy some land and pass it to my mother. And my mother's an educated woman, so she's able to have some land. So, you know, I came from a background where um, ownership was important. We also changed our name after emancipation to where, you know, we didn't keep the, the name of the, the captor of us at that particular time. No, we were free. And so we say, okay, we're going to change our last name to Hooks as a symbol of the Hooks being kept together. So my mother's, um, my mother's mother's maiden name was Hooks, Louise Hooks, shout out to my grandmother. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's, you know, and my other grandmother, she was born in Haiti. So as far as, you know, that uh, Durham community being, you know, black, right? Uh, all black and, and, and really a model of what black people could do and where they could be at that particular time. Um, so, so yeah, my, my background was really black. I was that kid in class who, yeah, as a seventh grader, was doing my history report, history day report on the Black Panthers. One year I did on the Black Panthers, then the very next year I did it on the history of money, right? So when you mix the two, you kind of got like how I am, where I am, where I'm like, okay, you know, this 
having and also having a foundation of, of who you are. I, I'm glad that my parents gave me a foundation of who I was and that I had the the ability to grow up in a neighborhood that was all black. I went to a school that was essentially all black. I moved to Atlanta that was all black. And also, I can never downplay the fact that I was able to see my parents in leadership position in the church, right? And I also learned startup life from the church because I went to a very small church. So when we had visitors, we had to put on the concert, we had to decorate, we had to make the food, right? And so understanding uh, what that production is like and and the time and the hours that it takes, but the, the satisfaction that comes after all that hard work is put in and you know what I mean, the show, the show goes how it's supposed to. So, so yeah, man, that's my background. Um, very black, very family centered, very uh, money focused oriented. My mother introduced me to the stock market, you know, have been, you know, in high school and they're like, oh, what do you want to be at that time? I'm like, I want to be an accredited investor. <laughs> like, however, I got to get there. That's what I want to be. So why did you feel the need to start Bro Capital? A lot of our listeners would say that these services already existed in different banks, fintechs, and, and credit unions. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so again, my background is in sociology. And so, you know, I took courses in college at Morehouse in Atlanta, right? Like I say, same building, everything Martha King was in around a, a literal a class called social problems, <laughs> right? Uh, took a class called, um, you know, the principles of sociology and really began to learn around or about rather structural inequality um, and how these systems are built into place so that, you know, one group stays on top, one group stays on the bottom, right? Um, and that's just how it is. So obviously that's a joke. And, you know, I knew essentially my whole life, the difference between being black in America and being white in America. I was born in 1990. So, um, you know, I, I remember Rodney King. I remember OJ Simpson. You know, I remember all of those, uh, those points leading up. Uh, I remember Jenna Six, you know. So, yeah. So I just wanted to make sure that nobody was thinking that, oh, he, he came up and didn't experience racism until, um, you know, he was in college. No, but, but, began to really put the structure on it from an academic perspective. I was really studying my own plight, <laughs> you know? And uh, that's really what allowed me to see that, okay, there are various social problems that, you know, instead of just studying in the ivory tower, we need to be actually be out here as sociologists building, right, social enterprises, social institutions. And, you know, in 2014, 13, social enterprises became very popular and the double bottom line, right, along with um, Steve Blank and uh, very instrumental in, in, in I guess, that, uh, that shift on startup companies and, you know, how that whole, um, how the whole ecosystem works. So, but, but long story short, man, you know, studying in college realized that, yeah, we got to do something about this. And so for us, it was, it was a no brainer that, um, you know, we were, we had, you know, we were going to do it. It's, it's rather intuitive, but there's a lot of science that went into the success of Bro Capital because we knew that uh, traditionally, you know, before the Jobs Act, right, you had to be a, an accredited investor to even think about, you know, investing in equity and what that's in 2016. So accredited investors, if you're not hitting that threshold, right, or what was it, 250k liquid or something like that, like 
a lot of people don't have that. Um, and so, and, you know, us learning that in our experience that if you can't get a friends and family round, right, because of, you know, there was no trust fund or you weren't a part of a country club to where, you know, it was just everybody gave $250, right? So you got 20 racks, you know what I mean? Like, um, or you have an uncle who's going to cut you a $25,000 check that you can, you know, blow so that then you can then validate. And then of course, you know what I'm saying? Go on. So no, that wasn't working for us. So we realized, you know, Bro Capital was founded with $500, right? And so we've taken that and we've grown that. Yeah, man, in the New York Times, in Time Magazine, in Chicago Tribune, all of that, you know, members across really the world at this point. Um, yeah, Bro Capital has, has taken it to the next level because again, we are business scientists, um, and really coming from it, you know, understanding social science, right? Where marketing is, you know, one of the children of sociology. So, you know, we, we truly came in understanding what was necessary to build Bro Capital from that level. And also, um, shout out to uh, Jonah Berger for Contagious. Um, and I think he also is a Wharton affiliation uh, yeah, professor. So, yeah, um, his book was also instrumental in, uh, you know, some of the some of the crafting. But we really took inspiration from everywhere, man. I, like I said, I mentioned Jonah Berger because we are on the Wharton podcast, but um, taking inspiration from, um, you know, the Black Panthers, taking inspiration from, you know, armed forces, taking inspiration from the church, you know, taking inspiration from all of these different communal um, and, and organizations built upon mechanical and organic solidarity, uh, truly understanding, you know, who our customers are, right? Because we're targeting black men and, you know, I have the distinct advantage that I am a black man. So I know that traditional financial services have been overlooking us for way too long, but at the same time, um, I'm not gonna complain about a missed market opportunity that I was able to see. and, and have you know a distinct advantage to take take advantage of, and it's um it becomes for us you know bro capital is an institution, and that's and that's really what separates us from your average startup and why there is no comparison or there is no one to one or what about your competitors simply because uh, we are not in it for the the five-year buyout, the 10-year buyout that, you know, BOA comes knocking or uh, JP Morgan says, you know, Jamie Diamond writes us an email, right? Or he sends us a wet signature like, hey, saw you guys making some noise. Um, that's, not what, that's not what we're in it for. So um, we are, you know, developing, as long as there's a need for, uh, well, as long, and I'll say this, as long as, there are black people being marginalized in America, there will be a need for broke capital, period. And that's just, you know, that's just how it works. And so, um, I, and I think, you know, we've, we haven't even, um, we haven't even hit our curve yet, you know, in terms of the, the massive growth that is, that is certainly on its way. And it's, and it's, and of course we've, we've certainly seen some, some major growth. I had the opportunity to uh, 
attend the very first Millennial Summit um, at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with AEI, but it's a, a pretty, pretty massive think tank. Um, but, you know, being able to really get into the institutions that are built within America and how they are built, understanding that it's, uh, you know, where the real work is done. And it really comes from, it stems from the ethics of the people who are running the institution. It stems from the morals of the people who are running the institution. So for us, again, having our code together in terms of our solidarity, in terms of who we are, um, was really important for us. So I know I'm 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 really going and talking, so but I'm gonna let you uh you know moderate and ask me some questions if you want to. <laughs> no, that was a really helpful overview. Overview, thank you. Um, so going back to your customers, who were kind of your first 100 to 500 customers, and how did they find Bro Capital? How did you target them? That's really interesting. So for us, again, financial services, financial services industry. If you um, you know, have they ever spoken to a recruiter from Northwestern Mutual or have you ever spoken to a recruiter from, you know, um, American Life or whatever, they'll certainly tell you that the game is the long game, right? The game is uh, relationships, right? Um, so for us, how did we meet our very first customers was, you know, sim similar to how you, you, you generally do it. Um, you, you go through your your initial Rolodex of, you know, who who do we have that may be, be, uh, be willing to use or willing to see value in this particular product or service. And um, I had the distinct advantage of attending the only uh, all-male HBCU in the United States, you know. So <laughs> I have a lot of, you know, gainfully employed, uh, black man with a socially social conscience in my phone you know phone book so um it wasn't too hard to to really connect with some guys who saw the vision um and i think you know shout out to napoleon hill where he says uh ideas can be sold where goods and services can be not or cannot be um and ordinary salesmen do not know this and that is why they are ordinary <laughs> and so I think that's, you know, that was a, a really important part for us early on was understanding that really all we had was an idea, a vision that we were really um, being able to sell and um, getting people on board to understand, okay, that, yeah, there's, there's powers and numbers, that leverage is the name of the game, um, and that capital is much more than money. And so that's really, you know, really one of our messages is that, you know, we say capital to the people because we are definitely proponents of the eight forms of capital model to where that's why our name is bro capital, right? It's not, you know, dollar sign capital or whatever the case may be. And it's also not bro lowercase, right? So you've got to capitalize the bro. It's only right for the brand integrity. Um, so, so for us, you know, capital, cultural capital, intellectual capital, spiritual capital, uh, natural capital, financial capital, uh, social capital, you know what I mean? All of these things are, are what we as an organization, as a platform, are what we aggregate. Um, you know, and again, financial capital is a, is a major component of that, but it's much more 
than just money. Um, and I think understanding the power and the resources that we hold within our hands is extremely important um, because you know anybody who's a student of power or a student of history understands that power is never given from one regime or from one era to the next right that it must be taken that is the only way that you know power works power is a, a finite resource so um i'm not a proponent of you know for things to change white people have to give up their power and, and and from a moral standpoint that makes all the sense in the world right because it's like yeah you know how are we going to um ever catch up if if we both traveling at 20 miles per hour but you're already 400 miles ahead we're gonna all you know there's that's why you know the wealth gap doesn't make sense because my 10 percent on your 10 percent you know yeah we both getting 10 percent on our money but you getting 10 percent on a billion i'm getting 10 percent on a hundred dollars right so yeah we got 10 percent out the market but your snowball is a little bit different right um so, you know, just being candid about like, that's never, that's never going to work. But also I'm not, you know, disillusioned about human nature and about how people work that their power is never going to be distributed in a, you know, well, here you go type of manner. Um, and so for us, it's really about educating ourselves on how to build institutions, right? So that we are not dependent upon these traditional, you know, financial institutions, whether they be public or private institutions, regulating bodies, so on and so forth. Um, really, really coming through with a whole new innovation around financial services, particularly targeting black men. Um, and at this point, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, and Gen Z. So going back to the social banking aspect, you know, it's really not common in any financial institutions. The only one that comes to mind is maybe Elvest for women. So can you talk about, you know, the importance of social banking and why it's so important to the black community? Indeed. Um, as I mentioned, Bro Capital is a cooperatively owned and operated organization. Um, Co-ops have long been used in black communities um, across the world, right? And, you know, stemming eons ago, right? To where um, people have always found that the potluck theory of if I bring one piece to the meal and then you bring another piece to the meal, soon we'll have a feast if everybody brings something, right? So, you know, we are uh, ancient ideas with modern technology. You know, breaking, breaking down that, 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 that misnomer, of, um, you know, you shouldn't do business with your family and friends, right? Um, and I tell people, you know, ask, ask Henry Ford, what would he say about that? Ask John Rockefeller about that. Ask, you know, um, J.P. Morgan, <laughs> what he would think about that, right? You shouldn't do business with your family and friends. That doesn't, or even George Bush, right? Uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't register on their radar. It wouldn't make sense because that's not how they operate. And so, um, again, for us to be students of power, we must play that game right according to the rules that they play it, not to the rules that we've been told to play. Um, and so that's that's really you know the understanding that uh, that that we move with is how do we 
And again, you know, untapped market opportunity is that at four millennials, we do everything in a communal fashion, right? Meetups, um, you know, brunches, all those types, you know, silent parties, all of those things, right? We, we are all about coming together, um, being heard in a conversation, right? And curating and having a curated community as well. Um, and so for us, it, it made sense because it was also a situation of, again, as a black man, I've been in, you know, in numerous barbershop settings to where uh, the black men in the, in, within that barbershop were genius. Right, they had some most amazing ideas, you know, and you know, logistically could put it together. I'm sure, um, but nobody ever moved on it. There was never any project management behind it. There was never any, you know, actualization of this amazing idea. And so, for us, it was about taking those conversations, taking that same energy, that same zeal, that same expertise, and being able to put some some real work behind it to make some things shake. And so you know, being able to pay our shareholding members dividends, being able to provide uh, revenue share to shareholding members. Um, and then of course, obviously they also will have equity stake within Bro Capital itself. Um, should there ever be a, a liquidation event, right? If uh, Jamie Diamond came through that uh, bag bag, then we, we might have something to talk about. Uh, I'm no fool. But until they really come knocking and really giving us our true respect, we'll continue to sell them out the trunk like Master P. You understand? So that's what it is. Can you talk about the influence of Mastermind, which is found on a lot of your sites, interviews, and branding? We are artists at our core, you know, so we are very creative individuals. Um, and you know, being able to draw inspiration from um, just the time and the zeitgeist from 2014 up until, you know, the present day to where, um, you know, there was several pieces of music. And one piece of music is, I've got a shout out, the Ricky Rose uh, Mastermind album. Um, which, you know, again, mastermind. And the principle to where he opens it up with Napoleon Hill and talking about how you can achieve in one day, you know what I'm saying, with many men, what it would take a lifetime to achieve alone. And so, you know, just understanding the principle that, you know, again, um, so, you know, that we're able to leverage one another and that we're able to leverage more than just money, right? Um, and that's how business is done at the very highest levels, is that they're leveraging more than just money. They're leveraging handshakes, they're leveraging relationships, um, they're leveraging intellectual capital, right? And so understanding the game and how it's played and moving ourselves into a position to where we can play this game on the highest levels at the high, you know, highest efficiency. Um, and, that's, and that's really what we're about is that, you know, yeah, we, we came to play. Like, oh, okay, this is America, this is the game. Okay, y'all want to play? Let's play then. Um, and understanding that, yes, the other side of business is government. That's how Ford is still alive today. Ford would just be out of here. Like, I don't even know how. Well, I do know how it's holding on because, of course, all of this quantitative easing. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation, I'm sure. But, you know, again, 
the fact that it's still, or even GE, right? You know what I mean? RIP Jack Wills, you feel me? One of the greatest managers, like, but I'm certain that, um, you know, <laughs> that, you know, the understanding is that we've also have to play the political game as well um, and be connected there and, and really fund legislation. Shout out to, again, American Enterprise Institute um, and the research that they do, um, the scholars that they have um, to really push that cause and that, and that, you know, and the, the conservative agenda forward. Um, but I'm not necessarily, I'm again, I'm not like advocating AEI or like being a conservative in that way. But again, they are an institution that I can draw from and that I respect in the sense that, you know, they've been able to, um, you know, to, to be on the map. And I, and of course I know they're funded by the Koch brothers. Right. And it's like the Koch brothers is like your total antithesis, but it's like the Koch brothers got to where they are by playing the game by a particular set of rules. You know what I mean? And so understanding um, what those rules are and not, not, and you know what I mean? They playing by a different set of rules and they telling everybody else, right? Cause they'll tell us, you know, don't work with your, don't do business with your friends and family. Right. But what are they doing? Build, how do you build a dynasty without building with your friends and family? Right. So don't lie to me. You know what I'm saying? I'm not playing that game with you. So what else are you not telling me about? So um, yeah. so, so kind of pivoting a little bit, we'd be remiss without talking about, you know, some of the structural and social inequalities that have been ingrained in American businesses since 1800s and early 1900s. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the Homestead Act, GI Bill, and how taxes have unfairly treated black Americans in the last, you know, 150 years? Um, I didn't say, no, nah, I don't want to talk about it. I want you to talk about it. <laughs> They'll take a differently from you. Like, I was just out yeah. angry and like, you know like oh they're complaining again um but no but but i'm uh being being serious about it um appreciate the opportunity to speak on it is that uh you know we often talk about jim crow and what was done to unfairly treat right black people right and so it, it gives it the illusion that okay well if we just lift these you know these sanctions um, on their, you know, first off their movement, right? They're actually physically in chain. Then of course, then they were, you know, had to fight for political rights. Then of course, after political, it became, you know, um, access to resources, land, economic school, right? Jobs, so on and so forth. Um, and it's like, okay, well, we've removed all of these chains. Why is there still such a grave imbalance in all of these particular metrics, arenas, um, areas to measure, right? That, uh, a lot of the conversation leaves out the, the legislative advantages that were specifically given to white men to advance to where, I, you know, the Homestead Act, you know, X amount of land, acres, hundreds of acres were given to white men. Um, you know, the GI Bill was given to soldiers that, you know, came back from, you know, for your listeners, right? I would challenge them to Google GI Bill, right? And of course, the racism associated with the GI Bill, as well as the Homestead Act, if they're not familiar with it, along with obviously the 13th Amendment um, and its unfair treatment of, you know, in a very, and, and it's so crazy because, uh, you know, when you talk about these things, folks really, you know, really say it's a, a conspiracy or you shouldn't really bring up these things, but it's, it's one of those situations to where, again, I'm not a disillusion around the fact that I can bring up all these metrics and these data around, you know, 
the the unfair treatment because again it was meant to be that way you know what i'm saying so it's like yeah you're you're talking about it but it's like that was how it was supposed to function so understanding um what the situation is and being very sober about the situation um you know we decided to to build ourselves and of course drawing inspiration from black wall street um and of course at this point i'm thankful that the watchman was able to bring uh much more light and revelation to the tragedy that occurred in tulsa oklahoma uh, during that faithful summer um so so yeah man that's uh that's yeah. It's it's you know one of those situations to where when we talk about reparations, I'd be remiss if I was on the Wharton podcast and didn't mention reparations. Is that yes, um, you know the the tax of being black is <laughs> tremendous. Um, the opportunities that we have been left out of, and of course, really just how compound interest works. You know, anybody who knows how compound interest works know that yeah, there's no way to air quote catch up. If you have this family who's been, you know, taking advantage of the stock market for four generations and all of these various stock splits and the economy booms and, you know what I mean, uh, it's not it's not going to be a way. So the stock market is certainly a way that we, and, and which I'm glad that, um, you know, more people of African descent in America are taking advantage of, uh, you know, so-called black people are taking advantage of the stock market um, and, and what it has to offer. But again, right, is is not a situation of, of us catching up. It's really just us increasing our life chances, as we say in sociology, um, through finance. Because again, money affects every single portion of our life. Money affects the quality of the food that you eat. It affects the neighborhood that you live in, which affects the, the quality of the air that you're breathing, the quality of the water that you're drinking, right? The quality of the schools that you have in order to get the job. Right. So it's it really, you know, it, it really all comes full circle. And I think, um, you know, us also being very explicit around the, you know, the education industry, um, the tech industry and, you know, the talent that is going through that industry, the financial services industry um, and also the design and marketing industry um, are all of the industries that. Uh, Bro and Company. Uh, you can go to www.broandcompany.com, um, which is the parent company of Bro Capital. Uh, but all of those industries, in particular, um, you know, black people face grave disadvantages, um, and traditionally have faced disadvantages. So we've, you know, where many people see uh, a Darth, we see an opportunity. Um, and so, you know, utilizing our sociological as well as our business genius and savvy, um, we're, you know, able to come up with sustainable solutions that are also profitable yet impactful. That was an incredibly helpful overview. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. I think just to kind of echo some things you said for our listeners who are trying to learn more, I mean, this podcast is just a first step. And as you said, it has to come from the listeners and everyone out there educating themselves. And to start with the GI Bill, a common complaint from 
you know, people in white communities that I grew up in is, oh, well, you know, Jewish folks, Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants were able to assimilate, you know, so easily in the, in the 20th century. But people don't realize that they had access to so many of these opportunities that black Americans did not. I mean, I think the yeah. History Channel just put out a big article explaining that almost zero uh, black applicants to the GI Bill were granted. And even yeah. if they were, when they went to go find housing, there was very strict redlining and they were not allowed to enter certain communities and were relegated to inner cities, which can have all of the problems that you mentioned about. So digging deeper into this topic, could you talk a little bit more about how policing of minority communities in inner cities can, can affect wealth creation and wealth building? Oh, certainly. Um, and it's funny because when I was at Morehouse, my capstone project and paper to get my sociology degree right, was in uh, police brutality and excessive force. And so I studied this um, to a T, uh, some, let's say, man, what, 2027 years ago. Um, and so it's really, it's really a situation where the black people, again, we lack control of our, of our own communities. Um, and so we're having people come in and police our neighborhoods who are then going home to, you know, their communities, right? Um, and I and I make the distinction of neighborhoods and communities because right there, again, we don't own it. You, you know, you own a community, right? The people that live there own it. Um, so, you know, we're living in neighborhoods, we don't own our communities. And so, um, you know, and then also police, you know, because of the nature of the job, they're coming into contact with what you call problem citizens uh, on a regular basis, right? That's the nature of their job, right? Is to quell any type of danger. Um, and so then, you know, you had these hostile interactions overall, whereas you join the force to do some good, make, make some change in the world, save for the white supremacist organizations that have infiltrated um, police departments. And I can't even say infiltrated because history shows us that, you know, they've always been one and the same, right? Um, so so that's, that's a whole nother situation, right? Because we can look at those in particular. Um, so of course, if you join the force to be, you know, a, a, a militant white supremacist, then, you know, any black male you see, you're gonna write him up for vagrancy, you're gonna write him up for jaywalking, you're gonna write him up for, you know, public indecency because his pants were hanging too low, right? I'm, you know, you, you look like a pretty young guy. I'm not sure if you knew, but back in the day, they used to um, villainize people that wore tennis shoes and wore sneakers, right? Uh, yeah, check that out, man. There was a whole movement around people that wore sneakers um, were, you know, much more apt to commit crimes, right? Um, this was back in the 80s. This was back in the early 80s. Check it out. And this was like, you know, before, again, like before Adidas really popped off. Um, but yeah, it was a whole thing around it. So there's always been ways to villainize subcultures and countercultures and young culture, right? Um, as, and, and there's often ways to villainize black people from whether it be vagrancy laws that, you know, you, you're not going to hire me, you're not going to give me a job, but then you, again, you lock me up for vagrancy, right? Um, and then, of course, put me on a chain gang essentially back into slavery, which the 13th Amendment allows. Um, or we're funding our schools based upon right, the property taxes in the area. Um, but again, going back to policing, right, now you're throwing somebody in jail because you're targeting them. And now, you know, they've got to pay a fine 
they don't have the fine or they can't make the court date because of it. They can't miss their job. Now the situation snowballs into a financial problem, but you're also, you know, jeopardizing their freedom, which then again, you know, you can't keep a job if you're in jail for two weeks. You know what I mean? Um, and then of course it just becomes a situation that is, uh, is, is totally untenable from that standpoint. You know what I mean? So how do we, um, how do we change that? Um, you know, I am an advocate. I've also read, right, while I'm mentioning Jonah Berger and uh, Napoleon Hill, I've also read George Jackson, uh, Soledad Brother, is a great read um, that, you know, really goes into the plight of the Black man in America based upon the prison industrial complex, where this very short story, George Jackson was 18 years old, um, committed a robbery, and he was given a sentence of one year to life. One year to life in prison. A, a very indeterminate sentence, right? And so, uh, you know, he's in there, and of course he begins to educate himself on his position and how did these things start and where did, you know, how did he end up even being in prison, you know? You know, was it his parents? But no, his parents got it from somewhere. So he really traces it all the way back and really just understand that it's the systems and the structures that we are underneath. And so I'm certainly, um, you know, all for defunding police uh, departments. I'm, you know, and, and of course, um, disbanding the police departments, that's a whole nother situation that, yeah, like we can definitely get into that too. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? In, in terms of agorism, for sure, and voluntarism, without a doubt. Um, you know, but I know this isn't a podcast for my political views, so I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll let it rock. Oh, thanks for that insight, Ross. So in closing, we have listeners across the world working in fintech, banking, tech, government, education, and a lot more. Do you have any final message for our listeners? To be totally honest and be transparent with you where it's like, all right, it's, Am I really supposed to believe that everybody was just blind of, you know, the systemic racism before George Floyd? You know what I mean? It's like, now we supposed to like talk about it as if um, something's new or I'm supposed to like give some encouraging coach, you know, Vince Lombardi word around go out there and fight racism. Like, man, you know what I'm saying? And that's what I'm saying. Like for us, it's like, we're going to do the work. You know what I mean? Like, no, we didn't create the situation, you know, from a generational standpoint, nor from a, uh, you know, um, historical standpoint, you know what I'm saying? But it's like, hey, you feel me? We Buddhist philosophy, we survived ourselves in this predicament, so what are we going to do, right? Um, <clears throat> so it's like, we just decided to get to it, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, you know, again, we've been in the accelerators to where we know at this point they ain't gonna give us nothing. They ain't gonna give us the advice that we're looking for. They're not gonna put us in touch with the funding that we're looking for. They're not gonna put us in, in, in contact with the opportunities that are necessary to elevate us. You know what I'm saying? It's like we at this point, like we we started out as, you know, signing a record deal in a sense. You know what I'm saying? Like we were able to become a part of an accelerator. And so we got a little funding, but it's like, okay, you got the funding from the label you know, you still got to build your brand. You still got to make the music. You still got to, you know, go on tour. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's like, well, if, yeah, we're going to do this, then while we up here giving away equity in our companies just to say that we, 
you know, part of an accelerator. You know, if they're not going to put us on to that next round of funding, if they're not going to put us on to that, you know, uh, that supply chain connect, you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what do we need you for? Um, so, you know, and that's, that's for us, bro. That's really, that's really what it's about is, uh, yeah, no, we not, that we, you know what I'm saying? We not even worried about what they're doing. I, I would certainly encourage all listeners to check out the, uh, Darius Quarles, um, pod, and excuse me, TED Talk, the Darius Quarles TED Talk on how banks, traditional banks are failing African-Americans. Uh, and what's been traditionally done to African-Americans, you know, within the banking system or just when we, you know, really, because, right, the financial industry is based upon trust. Even with fiat currency, it's all based upon trust. So it's like, you know, our trust as Black people in America has been broken so many times, so many different treaties, so many different um, covert operations that have taken place from the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment to the Freedmen's Bureau or uh, the Freedmen's Bank. Um, being, you know, embezzling. Yes, that's what he was doing. Thank you very much. He embezzled it into the ground. You know what I mean? Like, how egregious is that? But it's like, it's not his. He doesn't care. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I know up until the 80s or around the 80s that that business was about, you know, the the overall society. You know what I'm saying? In the 40s, the whole campaigns were about these factories are for the good of America, right? Um, and then, you know, got to the 80s and it's like, well, you know, now it's about shareholders. What are the shareholders doing? Are the shareholders eating? So we kind of got into this culture of just being very shareholder centric. But, you know, understanding that, you know, we as black people must build institutions to be able to compete and dominate within industries. It's not, a, you know, it's not enough for us to just become the CEO or the chief manager of some company that was founded by white people is that, you know, we are advocates, very staunch advocates of building our own um, from, you know, the Marcus Garvey, Elijah Muhammad, uh, from, from, that, from that school of philosophy of, yes, it is time for us to build our own. It is not time for us to be waiting for anybody to give us anything. And it's like, I do understand that fights and that wars are fought on multiple fronts. So, you know, from a, you know, the, my brothers and sisters that are in the streets and that are fighting the war on that front, right? Um, striking fear into the hearts of constituents is important, right? Um, has to be done. Shout out to the Boston Tea Party. But understanding that that's not where the fight ends and that we are uh, in solidarity with them doing our part to build the institutions on the back end. Thank you for that. I think that's that's a perfect place to wrap up. So I want to thank you again, Ross, for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your input, especially on short notice and sharing the message of you and Bro Capital. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.